Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and today I'm talking with Dr. Shika Popo, who's the Chief Medical Officer at Strive Health. Dr. Popo is a nephrologist with a blended background in medicine, public health, and business administration. And in this episode, she and I talk in depth about kidney disease and her work at one of the country's largest safety net hospitals, where she's able to focus her energies on providing care to the underserved communities. Let's take a listen. Thank you for joining me today. I am really excited for this opportunity to get to know you better, Dr. Popo. If you could please take a moment. Well, let me stop for a second and say one of the things that we talk the most about is how healthcare is a really complicated place. It is, you know, it doesn't matter how much you've studied or how much you know, there's always more to know. We kind of liken it to a 3,000 or a 10,000 piece puzzle. And each one of our guests basically holds a piece of that puzzle. And so what we're trying to do is to be able to understand a little bit more about the big picture, how we can sort of connect and work together and hopefully leverage that information to get farther faster. So if you wouldn't mind taking a moment, could you please share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work within the healthcare IT ecosystem? Happy to, and thank you for the invitation to participate in this conversation. So uh, yes, my name is Shika Papo, and I am the Chief Medical Officer at Strive. 
And I often tell people I've had a very circuitous journey to this point. So I started off doing my medical school at Yale and at the time, very excited about healthcare and curious. And at that point, I didn't know exactly what field I wanted to go into, but it was a wonderful opportunity, really diverse class and had an opportunity to just learn a great deal about medicine, but all the wonderful people that were moving into healthcare. I then moved on to Brigham and Women's where I did my residency in internal medicine and ultimately my fellowship in nephrology. And I fell in love with nephrology uh, during that time. Not only did I have the opportunity to do research, clinical research, but I had the opportunity to get my master's in public health. And that's where really the fire was lit around my role, what it could be as a physician leader. And so I ultimately made the decision to step away from academia and move to private practice because I was really eager to just spend time in the community setting and learn how everyday doctors are practicing. So I did that for about five years and loved it. And I had the pleasure of working with my dad and my brother, who are also nephrologists. So it was a family affair. And while I did that, I love community practice. I love that experience. I was, I have to say that I am a lifetime learner to your point that there is so much in healthcare to embrace. And I love teaching. So I ultimately went back to academia, but less so in a research role, but more as a, as a teaching role. So spent time at USC and I worked at primarily at the public hospital and LA County Hospital, one of the largest safety net hospitals in the country. And there I had the opportunity to just see, to really work with underserved communities. That was a point at which I really was connecting my role as a physician leader and how I could help those communities. But I still, being a lifetime learner, wanted to get more experience and, and position myself so I could be the best possible leader. So I ended up going to get my MBA and build that skill set around business. And ultimately, that led me to an organization called CareMore, which is an innovator in the value-based care space. And I had the opportunity to not only practice as a clinician, but also to be a physician leader. And while there, I was leading the kidney team and got the attention of the folks who were launching Strive. And so in 2018, I took the leap into the startup world and became the chief medical officer at Strive. So very circuitous, but what I will say is, I had the opportunity to work in so many different areas of healthcare, from academia to private practice to a public safety net hospital to a health plan and take all those different experiences. And I think they really positioned me well to succeed here at Strive. So I hope that answered your question. It was very long winded, but that is the path that I've taken. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it sounds to your point that you have experience from a lot of different angles and perspectives that from where you are now, you can probably mix that all together and inform and advise Strive. Exactly. That's right. I want to kind of just talk about one thing you mentioned, which is probably seems somewhat obvious, but what is a public safety uh, net hospital? What does that mean for the community? Yeah, so that is a hospital, at least in LA, where individuals who don't, who are either underinsured or don't have insurance have access to care. And so in in Los Angeles, we were taking care of patients, inclusive of Medicaid, or again, the, the folks who are not insured. And so it was an interesting opportunity because we had a lot of patients who were using emergency services for their ongoing care. 
And then also faced a lot of what we you know, fall into the bucket of non-clinical barriers to care. A lot of what we call a lot of what we call social determinants of health. A lot of patients who are facing barriers in that arena. So it, it's a hospital that welcomed all of those patients to be cared for. And does that mean that if somebody comes in through the emergency setting, that they would? get directed to the right care that's not necessarily emergent or urgent? That's correct. So no matter what happens when a patient reaches the emergency room, we have to attend to their needs right away. But once we realize that there are any issues that can be managed in the outpatient setting, then we do plug them into services. And where I work, there were I actually had an outpatient clinic at that uh, set in that setting as well. So it would often take care of patients who would be rerouted for more chronic management. Gotcha. Okay, so let's talk about Strive. What does Strive Health do? So Strive Health is an innovator in the kidney care space, specifically around value-based care. And we bring technology-enabled solutions to a variety of partners. So that includes health systems, payers, and provider groups. And what we deliver, the heart and soul of what we do, is this interdisciplinary care team that provides both care management services and direct clinical care, all with the kidney focus. And we bring these services provided by a team of clinicians. So it includes nurse practitioners, social workers, dietitians, pharmacists, care coordinators, care managers, this really robust care team to manage a patient population that is incredibly sick, um, uh, kidney patients. And what we do is we manage patients across the entire disease continuum. So a lot of energy and focus in today's kidney space has been on the dialysis side of things, which is understandable, right? I mean, those are the sickest of the sick. A lot of our technologies, a lot of the incentive programs have targeted that patient population. But what we know as clinicians, it's incredibly important to really focus on the preventative side of things. So how do we identify patients earlier? How do we manage them? How do we slow progression? How do we manage all of their comorbidities and complications? much earlier. So we have this team of providers that plugs in in a particular market to work alongside with PCPs or nephrologists who oftentimes don't have all of the time or resources to fully manage these patients in the way they would like. So we bring this team in to basically co-manage alongside with these providers and in this value-based space where we are really focusing on optimizing patient experience outcomes while reducing costs. So very high level, but that's what I've done. Yeah. So as a, somebody who's like born and lived in California for probably the majority of my life, what I noticed in several of the last elections is that there's been specific ballots on, mm-hmm. you know, to vote on having to do with mm-hmm. kidney, like kidney disease and, and what, to your point, the dialysis. And as just like a layperson it's really an, an interesting thing to like open up to the population of like, what should the politics exactly. be around yeah. all these kidney dialysis centers? And it like requires a bunch of research of like, why does this yeah. matter? Why is this showing up? And is that something that you can speak to? Just, yeah. you know, I, I think I can. I mean, I think what was clear with those ballot measures that you're talking about is the fact that we have these really, they're called LDOs or large dialysis organizations that own upwards of 80% of the market around dialysis care. And I want to say, be crystal clear that these organizations have done a lot of great work to support our patients, to care for our patients. But a great deal of what they do is focused just in that dialysis space. And I think a lot of the resources, staffing, research, 
funding has been in that space. And I think that what we saw in California was just a reflection of all of the attention being driven by these large dialysis organizations, because that's where the focus of care has been. And I think it was just another indication around how, one, we have to educate the public on what kidney care is overall. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say quickly some statistics that, you know, I think is one in three U.S. US adults are at risk for chronic kidney disease. I think it's upwards of 15 million patients, million U.S. adults have kidney disease and they don't even know it. And diabetes retention are the largest of kidney disease. So while this is an incredibly prevalent disease, I think folks don't really understand the full spectrum of disease and how it impacts themselves or their loved ones. So to your point, this huge ballot issue came up and there was a lot of energy and attention, but I think most folks didn't even understand what fits into to, to their world. So I think not only did it highlight, there's a lot of focus on the dialysis side of things and not the earlier stage management, but then it also highlighted that I think the lay public, the general public needs to have more education on what, what all the issues are around kidney disease. So not only can they be informed when it does come, come time to vote, on policy issues, but it is just such a prevalent disease. So how can people be better informed and better empowered to take care of themselves and their family members? Well, and I think you're also hitting on a topic around incentives, right? So Mm -hmm. it's a reflection of what we have put our resources, which is how do we handle it once it has already gotten to a bad place? Exactly. And it sounds like where you're coming from is like, hey, let's catch it before it gets there. Exactly, exactly. And and interestingly, one of the most devastating things about kidney disease is that early on, you don't even know you have it. So oftentimes you need to, one, be plugged in with a clinician who will screen for it and track it through lab tests, because oftentimes you're asymptomatic. And if and when you progress in the disease, you need to be referred to a nephrologist who can help manage that. But many, many patients, that doesn't happen. So typically a patient once they develop symptoms, their kidney disease is, is far gone and they crash. That's the word we use. They crash into the emergency room. And so all of a sudden you find out you have kidney disease and because you haven't been prepared upstream, you don't know, even know about all your options, which can include getting a transplant, which can include a type of dialysis you do at home or even conservative care. But I think it's upwards of 80% or more defaults into what we call in-center dialysis, which is one of these which is often driven by one of these large dialysis organizations. So it is an incredibly traumatic process for patient experience, and it's incredibly costly. And after patients who do crash into the emergency room, because they haven't been optimized in advance, they tend to have more complications, more risk of morbidity, mortality. So it is critical not only to move upstream just because we know we can prevent disease, but it positions patients if and when they do progress to have a better transition, to have better options, to have better outcomes. So it is something that I I know everyone in the renal space is eager to focus on for a variety of reasons. Well, and it's one of those things like once you go into the dialysis treatment, your life isn't going to be the same after. That's right. That's right. So for those who don't know, when you are on in-center dialysis, at least typically it's three days a week. It can be anywhere from three and a half to four hours. You often need, you do need a special type of access to be connected to this machine, which, and that access requires its own maintenance. So I think it it is traumatic, not only because of the physically what is happening to you, but emotionally and psychologically. And we know a lot of patients 
experience anxiety, depression. They feel like they have a sense of loss of ownership or agency in their own bodies. And so it can be a very difficult time for people. Well, then, so what, if you could like wave a magic wand and you wish that people knew more, like what would you kind of imprint on them? Or like, what should they know that would support them to kind of get, prevent them from having to go down that path? I feel confident saying that if you ask most people out there about diabetes and hypertension, they know what that is. Or even cardiac disease, MI, stroke. I wish there was a way for people to understand how kidney disease is linked directly to diabetes and hypertension. So the amazing thing is we have these wonderful advocacy groups. We have the National Kidney Foundation. We have the American Association for Kidney Patients that are are out there trying to educate providers and the general public on that concept that kidney disease is directly linked to those. It's hard because there, there are efforts out there. So I mean, we have celebrities out there trying to speak to it. And and I mean, maybe my magic wand is if I could be on a, a jet and fly to every city and every <laughs> throughout the country and, and get on my um, high horse and speak to it. But I think, you know, it's education and awareness. And I think it's companies like ours and, and many of the other startups and honestly, the LDOs that are out there now bringing attention to the issue. And I will say it's an interesting time to be in the kidney care space because 10, 15 years ago, very little attention. And people have said, if you ask most nephrologists, they'll say it's been very stagnant. But in the last five years, there's been a lot of resources coming into the space. You have everything from innovations through research. Uh, You have ASN, National Kidney Foundation, they're supporting initiatives, almost like incubators around research or technologies, devices, services. You have big VC and PE firms, honestly, pouring a ton of money into this space. You have these startup organizations that are in this space, and even the large dialysis organizations are pivoting. And I think a lot of it is being driven, to your point, you mentioned incentives. There has to be changes from a regulatory standpoint. Uh So we have been very, very lucky in the last few years that there have been big policy changes that have been put into place that are allowing physicians, provider groups to spend much more time and energy upstream to do that preventative work. So I feel like all the different stakeholders are involved and all the attention and resources is finally coming in to this space, which is exciting. So that's great. I mean, so I do a lot of work in understanding value-based care and kind of on the Medicare aspect of that, like those Mm -hmm. payment incentives. And so tracking like quality measures and improvement activities and costs of episodes of care and whatnot. And I don't, I can't tell you that I have all the quality measures memorized because there's like more than 300 of them. (laughs) But I do believe there's some really important ones connected with, you know, with kidney disease. And so I think on the, yeah, on the provider side, it might be something to focus on because you typically, the way that we work in our consulting is like, okay, there's six quality measures for the most part that you are tracking, which essentially is a reflection for a clinician practice of what they care about. Like what, mm-hmm. it, what, are, what are they trying to provide the best quality of care in? And mm-hmm. so that gets to be a bigger conversation with their workforce and you know, what attention they give to patients and what questions that they ask and what they're tracking, like that whole what gets measured gets managed concept and and whatnot. So that's right. And I think that's the exciting part around why these policy changes are going to 
I think really be transformational in that they do include those priority quality metrics for providers that focus on the upstream work. So for example, I know with the kidney care choices, there are metrics around the number of patients that you get to transplant, right? The number of patients you get to home dialysis. Been very happy to see that there are metrics around that assess behavioral health issues. So anxiety and depression, right? It's not just the, you know, the clinical issues and comorbid issues. I mean, anxiety and depression are clinical, but it's behavioral health is also included. And I think it's exciting, yeah, that there's finally attention on some of those metrics. And it, it, actually, that makes me think to your earlier question when you asked, how do we bring awareness on the topic of chronic kidney disease? I think it is also through these metrics. I think when you have doctors who are involved in care much earlier, accountable to meeting a variety of metrics on kidney care, it kind of it does bring that attention. I learned a factoid through one of these conversations recently that there are, of the like tens of thousands of CPT codes that are out there, there's only 37 that correspond to behavioral health. I and didn't so, know that. Is that I, right? Yeah. And when I found, I was, I'm like my jaw dropped because it made me realize wow. why are we not as concerned or caring for people's mental health, yes. you know? And that's part of it. It's like there's very little incentive wow. beyond a depression screening or that sort of thing that, that providers are able to bill for. So That is shocking, actually. Yeah. When it comes to like advocacy work or what people could do is just like find a CPT code that somebody could get reimbursed for and try to get that into the system to help... It's inform regulation and incentives. It's critical because we know as clinicians, I mean, in our own lives, right? All the burdens that patients face around behavioral health, psychosocial issues, it's it's, it's kind of everything. I mean, I think that COVID has brought that up. I mean, especially well, the pandemic in general, it's just like when, this is honestly something I've been dealing with on a very minor scale recently of just, hey, how do you go about your day-to-day life as if everything is great? And I don't even have a chronic condition when right. you're not feeling 100%, you know? That's right, that's right. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly right. It's facing just the challenges of day-to-day life, let alone illnesses, mm-hmm. let alone navigating the healthcare system and what that brings. So I, there needs to be a lot more work. There's no doubt, you again, you see a lot of startups entering the space. And, and in the midst of COVID, you see a lot of these telehealth opportunities around mental health. But at the end of the day, too, you do need these. You need to be able to get paid. Yeah, you need to be able to get paid for your work. And I've been talking to a lot of folks about behavioral health and, you know, some mental health and basically the idea of like, where do we want to go in this like hopefully soon post-pandemic world? But it doesn't need to match. It's like that they're not keeping up. So it just makes me feel I'm like, oh, there's so much to be done. If you're you're ever bored, get into health. (laughs) That's right. But that goes to your point about being, you know, there's always something to learn. You just taught me something today. And and I think it's just because it is it is an incredibly complex system. There's so many people involved and patients are complex. And there's just and like to your point, it's the regulatory issues. It's the it's a lot. I know it's everything. Okay, so can we transition to talking about you a little bit? Okay. Yeah. I love, I've been loving asking this question is what do you think your 10 year old self would think about what you do for a living right now? 
<laughs> my 10 year old self, I think wouldn't be surprised in that my 10 year old self loved learning, uh, especially around the world around her, loved learning about biology and science. And so I don't think she'd be surprised that I'm in healthcare. Well, maybe a little bit, because there was a point at which I was debating doing basic science versus healthcare. And I remember distinctly making the decision that I wanted to really engage with people and, and teams. And, and so, but I think she'd be surprised at how far I've come. I would definitely say that. I think even my 30-year-old self is surprised at how far I've come. So yeah, I would say that um, not surprised about the the specialty or the profession, but surprised at how far I've come. Okay. She'd be proud. That's good. Very proud. Very proud. Yeah. All right. And then <laughs> given what you know now, and I'm sure, I mean, just like all of us, we've had to overcome challenges or learn some hard lessons along the way. Yeah. If you could either, I'll phrase it a few ways and answer how you want. It's like either give your 23-year-old self of the advice that she needed to hear or help somebody mm-hmm. sort of hopscotch a challenge that you faced. Yeah. What would you tell? What would you say? I would say use your voice. Use your voice and know your power, for sure. And the reason I say that is, I mean, everyone has their own insecurities and challenges they face. My, in particular, was just not speaking up and not knowing my power, right? I think a lot of us have worked hard, have learned a ton, and have a lot of value to bring to the table. But if we don't know that power and we don't know how to speak to it, it can be challenging. And I think it's important to do so not only for myself as an individual so that I can you know, achieve and be successful in my work, but it's also to help others. I think what I've learned is oftentimes people are in their day-to-day thinking that they're alone and that they're facing the struggle by themselves And then the next thing you know, you go down this rabbit hole and you start telling yourself stories and narratives about who you are and what you can achieve. But then you talk to someone else and you realize, wait, I'm not alone. And not only does that help you feel great, but then you learn like how they face those challenges. So I think for me, it's being able to speak up to help others who are going through similar issues, but then also just so I can create my own path and move forward. And I think Part of the reason, too, is important is because I think this world tells us there are cultural norms, there are narratives around who we should be and, and what we can achieve and what our potential is. And I feel squarely that we, we define who we are and what we do and, and no one should tell us otherwise. And so I have to be able to speak to that. So I love that. I went on a personal journey a couple of years ago, kind of like as my own, no need to get into it, but... Yeah. <laughs> You've said it all, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But I I really, I found some kinship in the analogy of trees randomly, Hmm. where it's like seeing a lot of trees that may just seem alone standing there, Hmm. you know, on their own and not realizing how much is actually going on underneath Hmm. the surface and how they're connected. And really, like once I started doing a little bit of research and realizing that like, their root systems are 
typically going like far and wide. Like it's not something that you see above ground, but underneath they are all connected and they have a way of communicating with each Mm. other that if there's danger down the road, they can like share like either smells or like biology, like information to like let the trees down there know so that they can prepare for it. And I mean, it just kind of went on and on and on. It was like an onion layer of like lessons when it came to trees. But I felt very, it was something that I tapped into to your point of just feeling like, gosh, on the surface, it, it may feel like you're just alone and you don't even realize that we are so connected Mm -hmm. and you know more supported than you even can acknowledge or even realize on a day-to-day basis and like when you tap into that like oh it's powerful it is (laughs) thank you for sharing that I'm, I'm gonna have that in my mind for some I really like that Oh, yeah. There's a book. Let's hope I remember the name. I want to say it's called The Overstory, but I'm happy to share it with you. Please. And I basically like went through and dialed in so many like life lessons. Mm. I was like, oh, never thought I'd be so inspired by a forest or a tree, but really. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? But that's fantastic. And I love that. Yeah. Well, Dr. Popo, I feel like we could talk for ages, but I probably will talk your ear off and let you talk I, my ear off. I could definitely talk to you for ages. I <laughs> but I don't think we, I don't know we have that time today. But if people want to follow you, work with you, connect with you or your organization, where would you direct them? So 100%, I am very active on LinkedIn. So people could feel free to connect with me there. I know and Heather can speak to this as well, but we have our, our Strive website, so you can connect with us there as well. Haven't been as prolific on Twitter as I would like to be, but uh, hopefully that'll be coming soon. But I would say primarily LinkedIn and our website. And then my email, I am open to people reaching out. My email is uh, S. And my last name, P-A-P-P-O-E at strivehealth.com. You know, if you ever just feel like hopping into Twitter, one of the ways that I felt like I was able to really just kind of get it, because mm-hmm. I was like, why am I going to share 130 <laughs> characters yeah. at a time, right? It doesn't necessarily feel super intuitive. Yeah. But there are some Twitter chats that are basically groups. They meet at a specific time every single week around a specific topic. And I find that oh. if you're trying to get involved, there's one in particular that might be of interest to you. It's called Healthcare Leader. It's on the mm-hmm. hashtag is HCLR. And it's Tuesday nights, I want to say oh. at 5.30 Pacific time. H-C-L-R? Yeah, or maybe H-C-L-D-R, healthcare mm. leader, H-C-L-D-R. And basically every week they have a list of, it's an hour of people within the healthcare space coming together around five questions. And then they just Ooh. put your opinion and they reply. So if you are you know, have dipped your toes into Twitter and wondering how to get farther, that would be my advice. That is the best recommendation because for me, there is so much and it's a whole signal through the noise and mm-hmm. I don't know how to start. So I'm going to take that recommendation. Thank you. I think you'll like it. There's a lot of really good people there too. And I get to see you there. Hopefully yeah. so we'll have more yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you for this time. This has been a real treat. Oh, and, um, I hope that we get to stay in touch. We will. I'm confident that we will. We'll be part of that root network. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle Hit Like a Girl Pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Hit Like a Girl Podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission driven which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com.